Okay. All right, gang. Good to see everybody this morning. Y'all are looking good in that blue light. Those blue lights just look good on you guys. So, and uh, John, you're like perfectly lit up like an angel back there. Yes, there you go. <laughs> That's fun. So, we have a guest in the house. Did you guys notice that John Heaver is here? I believe he's cheating on his sabbatical, okay? He's not supposed to be working. And so when I saw John, yeah, well, when I saw that he showed up, I was like, oh, shoot, we have to do a church service now. Because little does he know, we, the band has been doing like Zeppelin songs. We've been playing Pictionary on Sundays. It's been awesome. We've really just not done anything spiritual while John has been gone. So, no, good to have you, John. So, um, so I'm Jim, one of the pastors here. That's another one of them. John back there, he is in the midst of his sabbatical right now, finally getting some rest and time to rejuvenate and get refreshed. And then Steve uh, Reed is also one of our, our pastors, and he is going to be up here a little bit later talking about a communion and as we share in that together. So uh, we're continuing on in our series here titled Unashamed. And with, with every week, we've been starting with this reminder verse, this really important truth that Jesus sent us into the world. And that was not to be timid and ashamed or to hide in the corner and keep our faith private and a secret. That wasn't it at all. Like prior to him leaving the earth, what he said was, go make disciples of the nations. Tell everybody about what I have been teaching you. And so this is a tremendous responsibility that we have. It's a tremendous privilege. The cool thing is this, this co-mission. Like we just do our part and God does his part. And I really think, and I'm, I'm thinking for sure, God has the hardest job is that we get to communicate and love and demonstrate, but he has the job of changing and turning people's hearts. And that is the hard job that we can't do. We have the easy job. And so thankfully, we're in this with him. And so that verse that we've started with, John 20, 21, it says this, even as, even as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now that is to each one of us. Every single one of us as Jesus followers, it was not reserved for pastors or missionaries or full-time clergy. It was the marching orders for each believer. Now, the future of Orlando and Orlando coming to Jesus is not going to be myself or John becoming better preachers and reaching more people. Um, that's probably not going to happen. Okay, um, what will change this city and neighborhoods and families and the culture is us. It's you guys. It's us together. And that was Jesus' real method. It was men and women. And with that very 
simple method, which to outsiders may have even looked like he failed. Like after, you know, three years of solid ministry, after Jesus' crucifixion, there's not a lot left. I mean, there's about 70 or so followers, and some may have even looked at this movement that Jesus tried to, tried to start and said, well, that was a waste. You know, I mean, not much has been accomplished. Some even had that discussion like, yeah, there was this one guy who started this uprising and gained a little bit of a following, then it just kind of like um, just fizzled out. And I'm sure there were some that thought, this too will fizzle out as soon as their leader is gone. But 30 years later, Christianity had spread like wildfire, okay? And so even though his method was largely undetected, once people really saw how it worked, I mean, it was like it changed culture. So you had these ordinary people like Stephen and Andrew and Priscilla and Claudia, just normal, everyday people who had been transformed by the gospel. And those were the people that were spreading the good news. So I think that's just encouraging for us to see that kind of change back then and knowing that God can use us in the same way. And I know a lot of times it is easy for Christians. At times we can be cynical and we can make comments like, well, the church is just not doing well and the church is this and the church is that. Um, but the truth is, is that we are the church. And when I think of our community here, I'm like you guys like are striving to become more like Jesus. I don't meet a bunch of hypocrites in this room who preach one thing and live another. Like there is a desire to follow Jesus. And that is a great thing. And those, you guys, are the ones that Jesus is going to use. And so there was this statement that I remember when I first became a Christian that I heard often, and I agree with then, and I agree with now, and it's exactly what Jesus preached, and that is the church is the hope of the world. The church, us, we are the hope of the world by bringing the gospel to others, the ones who would come after Jesus. So initially, you know, in the beginning, we had this, this garden, okay? In Genesis, this garden and a peaceful existence where humanity's needs were met and we were walking with God in the cool of the garden. And then we had this choice, and that was either to do our own thing or follow God's will. We chose our own, and things kind of got ruined. So that's the beginning, this garden. And then if we look all the way at the end of the story in the book of Revelation, we move from a garden to this city, this new city that then would be restored, and it would go back to the garden essentially is that God would be in charge. So Jesus would be the king of this new 
Jerusalem and he would rule. Here's the exciting thing, is that process has already begun. And we get to help usher that in right now. So this morning I'm going to look at, um, we're going to look at together, uh, the methods of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and then Hudson, a guy named Hudson Taylor. And they're fascinating, and here's what I love, they're really simple. They're really simple. So first of all, with Jesus, a lot of times in the church today, there are numerous programs and curriculum and classes that we need or some would say that we need or we think we need to be effective in reaching other people for Jesus. Well, when we look at Jesus, there wasn't a curriculum per se. He was their curriculum for this group of men that he was spending the majority of his time with. And he was his method. So he would spend time with them, and they would simply learn from his example. It was that simple. So he would demonstrate how to live and interact with people and with his father, and they would learn by simply associating with him. That was it. That was it. So it was all built around relational connection with his main people. So the vehicle for transferring truth to them was seeing it in him and seeing it lived out. And that method worked perfectly. We don't have examples of Jesus saying to the disciples, hey, you guys get a good night's sleep because in the morning we're getting up and we have this class and we're going to go through this. The beauty of this was that class was in session 24-7 all the time consistently because they were together. And so when we look at even Jesus teaching what he instructed, the overwhelming majority of it is not public sermons that he gave to the masses, but it's private individual discussions that he had, which the Jewish rabbis would call this midrash. Okay? Just Jewish rabbis who would apprentice, have others apprentice and walk alongside them. And that was how Jesus was going to do this with his disciples. It was come and follow me, right? That was it. Just come and follow me, work with me, work alongside me, and you're going to pick this up. And that's how you're going to learn it. It isn't going to be a number of classes that I need to take you through. We're kind of seeing this with our son, um, Luke, who's about ready to graduate. And so he is doing an internship. He's 21 years old. He's doing an internship with a friend of ours. And it's incredible to hear him come home after each day of work. And <clears throat> right now it's like this commercial real estate, and they're dealing with like $10 million properties, you know. And he'll come home, and he's, he's learning how to find property and how to gauge what it's worth and what can be done with that and just all kinds of really cool things that he would never learn in a class in college. 
But just because he's sitting there and he's listening to the phone calls, so this friend of mine, as he's mentoring him, will put these phone calls on speaker, and Luke listens. And he's there, and he interacts, and that is how he's learning this business. It's just a really natural way to do it. And even somebody that is that young can pick up on it pretty quickly. And so this is the, the method to Jesus' madness that influenced law and medicine and science and morality, entire cultures, entire continents. I mean, it was masterful. And here's the part that I love about it. We can duplicate it. We can. It's that simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. So there's some guys here in the church that I spend some time with. And if you've spent time with me and we've talked about following Jesus, there's this book that I always bring up, and this is it. David, do you know which one I'm going to mention? You don't? He's looking at me like, I wasn't ready for this question. Okay. So it's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Okay? This is how thick it is. All right, that's it. That's it. Um, it is a short, very simple book. I personally feel like it's the most precise, concise, understandable and no punches pulled handbook on how to reach the world for Jesus. And so I had been reading this for years, just combing through it with a bunch of the guys that I was following Jesus with. And so the author, his name's Robert Coleman, I was in a room with him and found out he was there. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to meet him. I've got to meet him, you know. And so when I did, it was really cool because I said, hey, I just want to tell you, like, that simple book that you wrote, like, it has changed my life. It has helped me help other men follow Jesus. And he was like, man, that's so good to hear. He said, you know what? I just wrote that because there was all kinds of, I mean, there were books out there. There's all kinds of stuff on how to grow the church and how to reach people. And he said, I feel like it was really simple, and Jesus did it, and we were just kind of missing it. So I wanted to just pull those things out that Jesus did. And, you know, he said, he was like, I just thought it would help, you know, some group of, of leaders or whatever. I had no idea that it would sell like four million copies, which is what it did. It's crazy. And still still selling, you know. So it was really cool to meet him, but just see that, yeah, it is just simple, and I wanted to highlight that. So if you're wanting some quick reading, which will take the rest of your life to live out, but is really, really easy to understand and super practical, then this is a great thing to get. You can get it on Amazon. So the Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman. What's that? Huh? I am not getting a cut of any prop, no. <laughs> um, so one of the phrases that I love in Scripture is when um, Jesus' followers, so those disciples, were in front of some religious, or I should say like government officials and authorities, and the way they described them was not that, 
hey, you know, we, these, these men here are, they're scholars, they're prominent people of position and privilege. They did not describe them that way at all. The way they described them was these men had been with Jesus. And the implication was they've been with him a lot, and they've spent a lot of time with, with him, and they're probably like him. They talk like him. Their priorities are like, are like his. These men have been with Jesus. And that is the key. There was this association with him and demonstration from him that helped create change in them, and it redefined the culture of their lives. And so here's the thing that I love is that Jesus knew that they were just ordinary people, just like us, and yet they would accomplish some amazing things. So John 14 says this, and I always take note of it whenever Jesus starts a sentence or something that he's going to say like this. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, he's talking about how the Holy Spirit is going to fill them all, and they're going to be able to do great things collectively that he couldn't do on his own. But amazing that he's saying, you're going to do greater things And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So a takeaway for us this morning is how is God going to use us in others' lives? It would be those two principles, association and demonstration. So my question for us is who are we associating with And what are we demonstrating? And I would say as Christians, we love being with each other, okay? That is part of our community. We love being with each other, and that is part of how God has raised us up in this community of faith. But we also need to ask ourselves, like, have we insulated ourselves only with Christians, Because sometimes that can happen, where we look around and we think of, boy, all of my circle of friendships are all Jesus followers. And if that is the case, this isn't to shame us. It's just to say, let's pray about that and see if we can open that up. One thing I've, I've kind of gauged, like I think about this a lot. And, um, and over the years, <clears throat> I've done a number of weddings for friends that are not Christians. So they've asked me to, you know, I'm kind of the closest thing to a church or whatever that they know, but that's always kind of reminded me, okay, good. I have friends that are outside of the faith that are close enough with me that trust me, and I can do this. So that's really important. Now, if that stops... I know that, oh my gosh, I'm spending too much time with those who know Jesus. So um, I just think that's important that we think about our circle of friends and are others like allowed into that circle real easily, okay? 
or do they feel like they would have to kind of break in? And so when I first became a Christian, I remember you guys probably have heard me talking about this. I was first introduced to a group of believers who are just wonderful people, took an interest in me. I mean, there were so many things that I was impressed with. Well, it was, it was interesting. Like, I went to a different ministry on campus there at, at Bowling Green later, and I walked in, and there were a lot of people that obviously knew each other really well and were, were friends and those kind of things. Nobody talked to me. Nobody. Eventually, it was kind of the same guy who would come over and say about the same thing every time, um, never remember me. I would notice that all of them would go out afterwards, and they would go somewhere to watch a TV show. Back then, it was a Cosby show, all right? They're all going to watch the Cosby show on a Thursday night. Yeah, that's sad. Anyway, but I would notice everybody would leave. No one ever invited me. Okay? Oh, I know. But to me, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. It, what it communicated was just like, I don't think these people really want to hang out with me. It's not a big deal. But I certainly wasn't going to go back. And so they already had their friendships and relationships and just didn't see me in that. And so this is just good for us to remember that every Sunday morning there are people coming in here that might assume everybody knows everybody here. And the truth is we really don't. Like a lot of us are newcomers and we have insecurities and it's tough sometimes to talk to, like even when we do that meet and greet time. Okay, I know for some of us, that's like, oh, this is great. I get to meet new people. For some of you, it's like, oh, gosh, I have to talk to people. This is hard. It is. Introverts, extroverts, the extroverts are all jumping around. The introverts are just like, when is this going to be over? So we know that we have those insecurities, but something we really need to pray about is just, hey, God, can you build my circle and open it so that others are invited into that and really feel comfortable. So we're going to talk about the Apostle Paul here, and I love this section. We're going to look at Acts chapter 17, and it's so, this does a lot for me, okay? I love method and strategy, and I just love the way Paul handles himself in these three different cities. Now, Paul's life is this fascinating story. He's this fiery enemy of Jesus and his followers. He's going from town to town for God to capture Christians, have them put in jail. I mean, he is an enemy of Christianity. He had this extremely religious upbringing. He was trained in Judaism by the famous Gamaliel. He's intelligent, He's well-read, he knew Scripture, and then Jesus gets a hold of him, gets a hold of his life, humbles him, and Paul becomes the guy that eventually gets persecuted for Jesus and gives his life in service to the Christians that he tried to destroy. An amazing change. I love how strategic and wise Paul is when he approaches different types of people and different types of crowds. And Acts 17 illustrates this really well. So we're going to look at these three different cities that he walked into. 
and how he communicates to them differently. So the first one is Acts chapter 17, 1 verses 4, verses 1 through 4. And this is in a city called Thessalonica. It says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So it says that um, this is kind of over, it says three Sabbath days, okay? So about a three-week period that he is reasoning with them in the synagogue, knowing that he's most likely talking to religious people. They're at the synagogue. So he finds common ground. He meets them on their turf, and he doesn't talk down to them. But he educates them on what Scripture says about Jesus. And it was effective. We see right there at the end, it tells us what was the result. Well, some of the Jews were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas. So Silas was kind of teamed up with Paul doing this together. And a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women, too, are following Jesus as a result of Paul teaching that way. Okay, so that's Thessalonica. The next place he goes is Berea. Okay, and it's a little bit different. The people are a little bit different, and he kind of describes that. So Acts 17, verses 10 through 15. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Okay, so now they're doing this at night. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue again. So this is kind of this custom. Paul knows, like, there's people that are religious there, and I know that I can start conversing with them about these types of things. We have that in common. But he mentions a difference between them and the Thessalonians. He says, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness. So they're excited to hear what Paul has to say. They're eager to hear that message. And then it says, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So they're examining those scriptures, they're reading that, they're checking Paul's words, they're making sure he's not making this up. And then it says, verse 12, as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So across the board, this is effective. But, verse 13, but when the Jews in Thessalonica Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So then, verse 14, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left 
with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So what's happening right now is Paul is basically a little bit on the run, and he is his other believers, they are escorting him at nighttime to the next city, like ahead of the other Jews that are after him and trying to persecute him. So at nighttime, they're like, hey, listen, you got to get to the next town, okay? Now it's to Athens, and we're going to leave Paul and Silas here for now. We'll get them to catch up with you later. I love the strategy. I love how they're working together. I love how they're, they've got each other's back. It's pretty cool. Okay, so these Bereans had godly character. They seemed to really value and honor the Scriptures, and so they were checking into them closely, all right? As a result, people believed. It's effective in reaching this crowd. That has a lot to do with their hearts also. Yes, Paul was preaching that and sharing Scripture, but they were eager, and God was already doing some things in the Bereans. They had character. Their hearts were ready and eager for whatever Paul brought to them. Now, let's move to Athens. So now we head to Athens, and we're going to read verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he sees that there are idols everywhere. People are not worshiping the Hebrew God. So, again, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So, again, Paul is intentionally looking for discussion. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, okay, where they said, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. In parentheses, it said, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way, you are very religious. So, the Areopagus, these are like these very intelligent um, philosophers and others, and like is communicated here in Scripture, they would get together, they would talk about the latest ideas, and this is kind of a, a section of Athens where they do that, and they would also have public trials that were right in this area. So, as I was kind of studying for this this morning. Um, I have a friend that I see over at Starbucks, and so Paul comes over, asks me what we're teaching, what I'm teaching on, and I mentioned Acts 17, and specifically like in Athens. He was like, oh my gosh, I was there, and I was right, and so my fiance in there, every morning we would go right by that spot, the Areopagus, 
and where they would all share those ideas. And he said, Acts 17 and how Paul communicated to those in Athens is on a plaque. And I would touch it every morning. He said it was really cool. And, and so, and this is how he started. And I thought, this is awesome. And that's very unusual that you have a conversation with someone where they know this. And part of that was because, you know, he had done a lot, of, a lot of traveling. So this is what it says on the plaque right here. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history in the boundaries of their lands. He's talking about them. God did this so that they would seek him <clears throat> and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He's already inserting his listeners into the story of God so they see where they fit into this. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I love this. Paul is saying, God brought you all to this point right now so that you would seek him and reach out for him. And I'm seeing that. You guys are doing that. You're reaching out to him. He goes on, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So he gets an invite back. They're curious. We want to hear more. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people already had become followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. So one of those members that's always out there talking about religious ideas and philosophy, he's already following Jesus as a result of Paul, talking about him. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So instructive for us, this section. Paul builds common ground with the non-religious people. Instead of starting with Scripture, like in Thessalonica and Berea, he takes the time to observe what they're into, observe the culture, take an interest in that, and then he compliments them on that. He doesn't bash them and say, I can see you guys are very religious, but you're really clueless. He does not say that. If anything, he's like, listen, 
this is how God's made you, and you're reaching out for him, and this is, this is what's happening. You're part of his story. You are God's offspring. Even your poets are saying it. So he is reciting Greek poets. He's not even going with Scripture yet. He's not going with Scripture at all. Secular poets that they knew that were kind of like the religious leaders for them, he relates to them where they're at. So verse 26 and 27, he compliments them on their reaching out to God. He frames that for them in how God is working in their lives. So I just love that he loves them, cares about them, understands where they're coming from, and then uses that exact wording to transition into the gospel. So years ago, when we first started H2O on on Thursday nights um, downtown, there were a lot of times where we would quote uh, like musicians or popular figures who weren't Christians because truth is truth, regardless of who says it, okay? Um, But sure enough, during that time, there were some Christians who would criticize us for quoting, like, you know, there's a lot of quoting secular sources and everything. And I always wanted to just say, have, have you ever read, like, Acts 17? You know, like, it's a really good section. And do you have a problem with the Apostle Paul? Because this is what he did. And we were reaching a bunch of people that were not churched people. So to meet them on their turf is a loving thing to do. All right, last one. Last guy. So we've talked about Jesus. We've talked about Paul. Now we're going to talk about Hudson Taylor. And here he is. Here's this young guy. And uh, about 17 right here or so. He felt strongly that God had called him, like he said, God has made me for China. He got prepared. He got trained. He was studying medicine in England. Part of that was like, not only do I want to share Jesus with them, I want to be able to take care of people and serve them while I'm there. Okay, this is kind of one of my heroes also. Um, there are some that would say he spent probably four and a half to five years just on water back and forth to China, sailing. And so he um, was willing to do whatever it took to reach people. When he first went to China, there were about 16 people that went with him, and they dealt with all kinds of harsh situations. Um, There are a number of them that got sick. He was constantly dealing with sickness. Um, He and his wife, so they had kids there, and three of his children died there, and his wife died in China. He was there for 51 years total. Started with 16 people. By the time he had died, in, I think it was 1905, there were about 25,000 Chinese that had come to Jesus. Here's the thing that I love about Hudson Taylor is that he was willing to love people and meet them on their turf. 
And so guess what? There were Christian missionaries already there that really weren't reaching too many people. And so what he did, and those other 16 that were with him, they were going to wear the traditional Chinese dress, okay? They walked the way the Chinese walked. He learned the language in two years. They're going to speak the language. They also shaved their heads and then had the, the kind of ponytail thing right up on the top. They looked like Chinese. And guess who criticized them? The other Christian missionaries who were there, who said, you're becoming like them. You're becoming like them. To which Hudson Taylor would say, can I remind you of 1 Corinthians 9? 19 through 23. This is Paul. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, Paul isn't concerned about winning little battles. He wants to win the war, and that's their souls. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. So he's talking about, I'm doing whatever it takes to reach whoever I need to reach. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. So Jesus' strategy is us, the church, a community of people associating with and demonstrating for others what it means to know Jesus. A community that listens to others, observes them, doesn't criticize them. We find common ground, and then we walk into the gospel, meeting them on their turf. I love the verse in the Old Testament where it says, these men of Issachar understood the times. It's important for us to understand the times and what our friends are going through, what they think, and what the culture says to them. If we do that, if we do those things, this city will change because people will see God in us God will use us, and he will change others' hearts, one person at a time. That was Jesus' method. It was not, let's reach thousands at a time in these massive sermons that I'm going to do on the side of a mountain. It was grassroots, 12 guys. That's a lot less people than we have right now. It changed the world. We can certainly change our neighborhoods or even this small city. Just normal Joes, after Jesus left, really made it happen. It's still the same method. It's really simple. 
Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that your word gives us some common, like just common sense application on how to relate to our friends and family that don't know you. We're just really thankful that you are working in everybody's lives, that they are part of your grand story. Help us to help our friends that we associate with to see where they fit into your story, how they are loved, cared for, provided for, ultimately that you sacrifice yourself for them. We ask you that if our circle has gotten too tight and that it's only Christians, that we wouldn't overdose on just our relationships with each other, but we would invite other people in so they could feel comfortable and that they might come to know you. We're willing to do that. God, tell us, show us what we need to do by all possible means so that we might see some saved. And we pray this in your name. Amen.